1: To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee, sounds perfect.
0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. I'm Molly. Molly, this week, breasts. Have been in the news. They have a lot. A lot. Yeah, this was uh as you guys know, we we don't record our, our podcasts and publish them the same day. So this will have already happened a few weeks ago by the time you're you're listening to this. But the Monday that we of the week we're recording this podcast, Boob Quake happened. Boob Quake. Yes. Molly, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about boob quakes since probably by now it will be that, you know, the distant news past?
2: Sure. This, uh, feminist blogger, I think it sort of started as a joke. She was responding to something that this very conservative Iranian cleric had said. He had basically said that women's immodesty in dress was causing earthquakes that, you know, by becoming this deviant force in society that was tempting men and uh, demoralizing society, they were causing natural disasters. So this blogger said, Hey, let's all wear our most, you know, out there shirts, short sh- short shorts, if that's your thing. Like, let's just be immodest on this one day and see if an earthquake happens. Yeah, let's see if we can really just get our, uh, our, our boobage out there
1: and, and start an earthquake Mm -hmm. and she started, uh, she posted this on her blog, blag hag. And then she started a Facebook page and of course it blew up. And next thing you know, it's the number one internet meme. Yeah. Um, It was
2: everywhere. And, you know, people on my Facebook page were saying things like, well, my boobs aren't big enough. They're not going to start an earthquake. So there was even some backlash about the body issues inherent in boobquake. And, um, you know, There's been some controversy because there was an earthquake in Taiwan the day of boobquake, but they're saying it doesn't count because the original blogger said, you know, boobquake lasts from this time to this time, and the earthquake was like right after or something like that. So a little bit of controversy – there was an earthquake. We don't know if it counts.
1: But there was also controversy among some women who didn't really take the issue that lightly. For instance, Beth Mann at Salon, um, wrote a, wrote a column about why she wouldn't participate in boobquake. quake. Um, and it's not that she, you know, d- didn't understand the humor of the situation, but she was a little more concerned that the feminist response to this Iranian cleric is to, show off our bodies because of course there men, a lot of men's response to boob quake was, yeah, bring it on. Yeah. I'm about to, I'm going to go get my camera phone. While, Let's throw you some beads. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras 2.0. <laughs> Great. I'll take boob quake. Um, and, uh, she, you know, for instance, from this column, she says, women should be, able, should be able to wear what they want. That's a given. Women should be able to sexually express themselves as they see it. Of course, Unfortunately, we live in a world that sees that kind of freedom of of expression as a photo opportunity or another cheap thrill.
2: Mm -hmm. Which I think brings us into the second big boob story of the week, if you will. And that was the Lane Bryant ad.
1: Yeah, this was uh, a commercial Lane Bryant had shot. And I can't remember which networks it was. ABC and Fox. ABC and Fox did not want to air this commercial, which featured... You know, one of their plus size models in Elaine Bryant bra, mm-hmm. uh, they didn't want to share this commercial because they thought that it was indecent exposure. Mm-hmm. Although, have you seen a Victoria's Secret commercial, Molly?
2: Well, there's that. And also, according, according to uh, the blog that Lane Bryant wrote about this issue, one of the shows that wouldn't put the ad on during their network time was Dancing with the Stars, which features a lot of skin. Those dancers take some clothes off, so I think for them to say that Lane Bryant can't air this commercial, they're either making some sort of statement about a big body, since Lane Bryant is plus size, or just big boobs in general. They're basically saying that some boobs you can see in a bra, the Victoria's Secret kind, and some of them you can't because they're just they're too big. It's too crazy.
1: Yeah, Fox. They said it, Fox demanded excess, and this is from the Inside Curves Lane Bryant blog. Uh, They said that Fox demanded excessive re-edits and rebuffed it three times before relenting to air it during the final 10 minutes of American Idol, but only after Lane Bryant threatened to pull the ad buy. So, Kristen, our cups
2: runneth over with breast news this week. Well done, Molly. Breast pun. Um, Let's unpack it. Let's talk about breasts. We've talked about breastfeeding a little bit in previous podcasts, and we talked then about how there's sort of this conflict between uh, a sexual breast and a maternal breast, but this week we've got some really cool information on that.
1: Yeah, we really, Molly and I really wanted to talk about, well, what, what's the big deal? What's the big deal with cleavage? Mm-hmm. You know, a, an A cup woman can wear a low cut top and get away with it much easier than say a D cup woman simply because, you know, they might be showing the same amount of skin, but but she's not you know the small breasted woman is not showing cleavage and the small
2: breasted woman is not going to cause an earthquake apparently
1: precisely so Molly and I want to dig a little deeper into this and figure out you know what is the deal with breasts i mean come on we know that we know everyone likes to look at them and i'm and i and i do say everyone i say men and women i mean obviously you know men might be a little more titillated by it <laughs> um than women but i think that breasts naturally draw our attention, mm-hmm. but um, you know, what's, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? What's the big deal?
2: So there's a book by Marilyn Yalom called A History of the Breast, and it really traces how sometimes there have been good breasts in history and bad breasts in history. Sometimes breasts have been in vogue and very stylish and very um sacred, and then sometimes they've been signs of indecency and immodesty, and I think right now we're sort of in a clash of those two, and we don't really know which way to turn, but it was a little bit more clear cut at certain points in history. So if
1: we look back in art, mm-hmm. it becomes very obvious that humankind has always been very fascinated by the woman's breast, and understandably so, because the woman, you know, we produce milk, it is the life giver to our offspring, et cetera, if we go back even as early as 20,000 B.C. to the Grimaldi Venus, this statuette is portrayed as, you know, this very large-breasted, kind of pot-bellied woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and is obviously a, a very sacred relic from back then. And this theme of these prominent women's breasts still continues in ancient art.
2: So we jump a little bit further from 23,000 BC.
1: Yeah, we we can move up from 23,000 BC.
2: <laughs> so the, yes, we go from these very ancient statues of the big-breasted woman. Let's talk about the ancient Greeks. They weren't so much they weren't so much breast men, if I may use a a common term. They liked to celebrate the phallus, and part of that is because the breast became a little bit threatening with the legend of the Amazons, according to Yolam. Uh, the Amazons were these powerful warrior women who had chopped off one breast so that they could shoot their bows and arrows. So they were killing men with the bows and arrows, and they were only breastfeeding their uh, female children with the other breasts, So the legend said. So that's why the Greeks were a little bit more about celebrating the phallus.
1: And then, if we take a big old leap, Molly and I are just hop skipping and jumping through art history, so bear with us. Um, but then, if you move to let's say the Middle Ages with the rise of the Catholic Church, you have so so much iconography of the Virgin Mary portrayed. Breastfeeding the baby Jesus. And the breast becomes this very sacred thing. Even though you're seeing the breast, there aren't sexual connotations to it, because this is
2: the holy mother. The the breast is something very sacred, very maternal, very natural. Feeding the Savior and thus by extension feeding all of us. Yes. Uh then along comes the Renaissance, where the breast becomes, you know, even fleshier, if you can imagine something, because the skin and the human flesh was very sort of emphasized pink, very pink in those paintings. Um, but it's also when, despite all these mother and child paintings, we do see a little bit of the signs of the sexual breast in
0: art.
1: Yes, and Yolam in A History of the Breast points to a painting of Charles VII's mistress, Agnes Sorrel. Uh, this is It's a painting known as The Virgin of Melun. And I'm probably, I might not be pronouncing that right, but it's M-E-L-U-N. And it's a depiction of her. She has one breast out and obviously is probably about to breastfeed um, her baby who's sitting there. But the child is not in the act of breastfeeding. In fact, the baby kind of looks like he could... He could care less Take about it this, or leave it. this large teat in his face. Um, but, but she says that this is really the turning point for when we move from the sacred breast to the far more sexualized breast that is highly celebrated in Renaissance art and also in the fashion over the, the next couple of centuries as necklines drop and breasts
2: really come out. And they come out as fruit. Basically, because all these poets, that's when they start writing things about a woman's apples and strawberries and cherries and globes and orbs. So it's both global and fruit.
1: Yeah. And also, if we're thinking about uh, the fruits today, you know, you might think that we might hear a lot more about, say, cantaloupes, melons. (laughs) But back then, the ideal breast was perhaps a small apple. They were depicted as a lot um, smaller and a little more nubile, I guess, mm-hmm. than we might think of them today. And that's largely because women in the Renaissance, uh, upper-class women at least, would try to preserve the, the delicate shape of their breasts by sending their children to wet nurses so they wouldn't have to breastfeed. And Renaissance husbands actually would not sleep with their wives while they were breastfeeding. They thought that it was um just a bad thing to do and so um so yeah the emphasis was on these these more youthful very young smaller breasts than you know say a playboy centerfold
2: right though men are starting to show their you know aff- affection for breasts i guess you could say in art because you see a lot of pains from that time when the man is cupping the apple apple sized breasts as a sign of ownership yes the weirdest are- <laughs> sentence i've ever said <laughs> yeah. yeah there there are
1: plenty of uh of depictions, I think there's a, a Vermeer that Yolam points out of a husband cupping his wife's breast, saying, "Look, this is this is my
2: beloved, and you know this is but my this is my breast, not your breast, hands off." Right. So it's a sign of ownership, but it wasn't really thought of as crude. No, it was you know that was just the way things were. But eventually, the 18th century. Let's take another leap forward. That idea of sending your kids off to the country to be breastfed. It went out of vogue. Yeah, there was this
1: huge shift, um, in the, I think around 1750, uh, Yolm estimates that around 50% of Parisian children were wet nursed. By 1800, however, all those kids were being, um, well, obviously not the same kids, <laughs> but the, uh, the trend completely shifted towards uh, mothers breastfeeding their own children. And this really started in England. And interestingly, this notion was not uh, instigated by women. It was started by uh, lots of prominent men at the time, including Daniel Defoe, Rousseau, Linnaeus, all these men saying, no women, you must breastfeed your children. And so we have this shift from the sexual breast back to the maternal breast. Mm-hmm. But interestingly also... Um, a fashion at the time still allowed for women to show their cleavage, put their, put their breasts on display with these, these low cut dresses that they were wearing. And so Yolam says that, that it's also around this time that we have the merging of the maternal and the sexual at the same time. So that at this point in history, the lactating breast becomes. Sexual. So we move from the Middle Ages where the uh, lactating Virgin Mary is seen as something completely sacred and separate to now, you know, the sexual new mother.
2: Right. So I would I would say, Kristen, that we've been uh, struggling with that joining of the maternal breast and the sexual breast ever since. I mean, you look at the debate over breastfeeding, which we've touched on in other podcasts, and people have a problem seeing women breastfeed because they've been trained to think of breasts as these sexual things. And it wasn't always so. I mean, even though we sort of jumped through our history, we do have evidence that there were points in which women sort of walked around topless, and it didn't mean anything. It didn't mean, A, that she was selling herself, and it didn't mean that she was anything less than royalty. It was just breasts weren't loaded with everything. We've loaded them since we've loaded them right up with all that sexual and, maternal innuendo.
1: Right, and I think we also have to keep in mind that we're talking about Western culture right now. In other parts of the world, a woman walking around topless is no big deal Mm. at all. I mean, it's just it's part of... You know, daily life. Um, but it's interesting, uh, you know, we, we generally think of breasts, like you said, as either something that's completely maternal or completely sexual. But Yolam also points out that they've u- been used, um, for political symbolism as well, especially around the time of the French Revolution. You have many depictions of women, uh, like bare-breasted women as, uh, Lady Liberty, you know, leading, leading the the people onward and even during World War 1 and World War 2 we have depictions in the states of lady Liber- lady liberty with more prominent breasts, um b- because i think that uh they're still seen as symbols of women's power and also something separate from men. Like, it's, at one point she makes uh, the argument that during World War II, American troops sort of had a breast fetish because uh, the female represented everything that um, they were basically destroying in this war, which is, you know, love and compassion and um, intimacy. Things they were fighting for in the war? Or that the war was destroying? Well, I mean, well, those things were the antithesis of the warfare going on. Gotcha.
2: So how do we get to today, Kristen? I mean, how do we get to a world where, you know, men in World War II are essentially, I mean, to to over, over oversimplify it, inspired by breasts to fight. And that, again, is a very big oversimplification to today where, you know, women are, you know, wearing low-cut tank tops to make a point.
1: Well, I think the...
2: Tricky issue, the boot
1: politics, the cleavage issue that we have to deal with is the fact that I don't think that we can ever divorce the sexual from breasts. You know, I mean, as, as primates, we have perpetually engorged breasts. Some the- scientists have theorized as a sign of sexual maturity. And I think that it's different uh, for women because it's this immediate outward sign of her sexual maturity, whereas for men, you know, we have things like facial hair. We've talked about facial hair before and how, you know, stubble is very attractive to women because it's also, you know, their initial outward sign of sexual maturity. Because um, usually you can't exactly um, spot from a guy's outward appearance whether or not
2: he is well endowed as well. So perhaps it's the fact that women just have to deal with the fact that they have them. Because, you know, let's go to an issue, cleavage in the workplace.
1: Ooh, that's a tough one, Molly.
2: So there have been uh, studies and reports that both men and women judge a woman who is showing ample cleavage in the workplace. Yeah. And as you said earlier, a woman who has smaller breasts can easily wear a low-cut shirt and not be seen, you know, as as scandalous. But if a big-breasted woman wears the same shirt, then, you know, people's perceptions of her professionalism and her capabilities immediately drop.
1: Right. The more cleavage you have, um, you know, the more the more attention that you're going to get. And it's probably not going to be positive attention if you're in the workplace. Um, and we ran across a few articles about this on Huffington Post and in the Wall Street Journal, really trying to advise women in the workplace about what we should do and there really were a lot of uh a lot of double standards i think um for instance let's go to this uh this column in huffington post from karen salmonson on the power of cleavage and and she said this and she's talking about how much breasts you can display in the office and she said, it's like pornography versus art. You know the difference when you see it. Well, if you're honest with yourself, you know the difference between pornographic cleavage at the office and artistic cleavage at the office. And I say to Salmonson, first of all, lady, what you talking about? Um, <laughs> pornographic cleavage at the office versus artistic cleavage at the office. I mean, no, Salmonson, it's the difference between an A cup and a D cup and, you know, one button or two unbuttoned.
2: Well, that's the thing is now we've been trained to think that big boob equals stripper mm-hmm. because the women who have made successful lives for themselves as strippers probably, again, to generalize, have really big boobs. Well, and then she goes on, uh,
1: to, you know, to support her argument, she calls out this study from the University of Central Florida where researchers were testing out how People would men and women would perceive a woman giving a speech based on her breast size. So they saw this woman um, at separate times as an ABC and D cup. And then they rated the actress on her professionalism. And she says the majority of males perceived the actress to be the most professional when she had a medium cut breast size, whereas females were generally not influenced by the actress's breast size at all. That's fantastic. Well, what are you supposed to do if you are, you know, a D cup woman? Like, you know, we can't exactly control. Well, I mean, I guess we can control, but we don't We
2: we can't naturally dictate our breast size, so... Which gets to why banning an ad for Lane Bryant is so ridiculous. I mean, if you really do want to teach a woman about the products that are available to help her keep a D-cup in line so that you don't immediately think stripper as soon as you see her, perhaps she should know about Lane Bryant's products. (laughs) Well, I mean, if we are talking about,
1: like, what kind of cleavage is acceptable in a professional setting and what's not, I mean, yeah, I've sort of taken Salmonson to, to task for her... Her, this Huffington Post article. But then if we head over to the Wall Street Journal, I mean, the kind of similar tones are echoed where it's like, yeah, I mean, cleavage in the office is still, you know, extremely taboo. Like the, the column quotes one woman who says there's no greater c- crime than to show cleavage. Period. No greater crime. No greater crime. I mean, it was basically it's making the point that you know if if you want to make a lasting impression, yeah, you show cleavage, but that lasting impression is going to be of you as um, you know the sexual object rather than an intelligent professional, mm-hmm. especially in a male manager's mind, because um, as uh, <laughs> as one psychologist has put it, uh, men have. Men go into a man trance whenever they are around breasts and they can't help look at them because it all goes back to basic biology of you know this display of our sexuality. So we should just cover them up unless we want to attract all these all these stares.
2: Now, Kristen, the woman who coined the term man trance is a woman named Luanne Brizendine, and she ta- she has a book, The Female Mind and the Male Mind. And I kind of take everything she says with a grain of salt because she's been called out for. Kind of shoddy research, like taking one isolated study and uh, just blowing it way out of proportion or misreading her results altogether. But you can't ignore the fact that Mantrans is an interesting term. And as if we weren't short on research dollars, people like Brizendine and other Scientists are doing all these studies about just how much men love breasts. You wouldn't believe the number of studies that have been conducting just to see if, if in fact,
1: men do like looking at boobs. It's ridiculous. I mean, we've got we Molly and I found studies about how hey, surprise, the larger the cup size, the more hitchhiking rides a girl can get. Um hey, men seem to rate women with larger breast sizes as more attractive than women with smaller breasts. Insane, you know? I mean, it's just it's kind of funny actually.
2: So then we've got look again, let's try and bring it back to this week in breasts, as I term this week. You've got Boobquake, you've got Lane Bryant, we're at clearly at this point in history where the sexual and the maternal have merged. Is boob quake a positive thing, a negative thing? Can you even say? Do we need to take more into account the fact that we're judged constantly on our breasts? Or, you know, do we, if we've got it, flaunt it? I mean, that's sort of the question of the day. It's It's unanswerable. We're not going to claim to answer it, but that's sort of what we're grappling with. Well, I would say, though,
1: that I think that this is, you say, are we judged for our breasts? I don't. I think that that is more of an issue for large-breasted women. I don't know that small-breasted women really are that much. I mean, unless you might get snarky comments about, you know, um, how they don't exist. But since they're not, they're not quite as out there. I think that um, the stakes are so much higher for large-breasted women. For instance, uh, we ran across. An, a column in washington city paper in response to the lane bryant issue and the the headline was with great cleavage comes great responsibility you know and and i think that 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 really kind of sums it all up you know like i don't think that women should necessarily have to cover themselves up if you're if you're d cup or larger or smaller or whatever you shouldn't have to wear a turtleneck to the office um And it shouldn't be more appropriate for an A cup to wear a deep V than, you know, a D cup. Um, so anyway, this is also the prime point when, Molly, I think it's time to turn it over to our wise and wonderful listeners to let us know what they think. Because it really is kind of an unanswerable question. I mean, yeah, breasts always are going to attract people's attention no matter what. I mean, if I see a, a large busted woman wearing a low cut top, do I look... Yes, I do. And you probably do too, Molly. Don't even try to lie. Um, (laughs) I didn't say anything. And I'm sure it can be a difficult challenge for guys who don't want to seem smarmy at all. And yet, (laughs) you know, they're going to look, they're going to look as well. So I don't know. Y'all help us answer, help us answer this question. Help us settle the cleavage issue.
2: All right. The email address is momstuff at house And we will read a few quick emails. First up is a correction uh, from Valerie. In our sex uh, sex addiction podcast, we referenced an article called Facing My Obsession in the Flesh. And we said it was by Benoit Deniset Lewis. And Valerie let us know that uh, the name is French and pronounced Benoit. Benoit. I knew Benoit sounded wrong. (laughs) It did sound a little (laughs) unpoetic.
1: Oh, all right, and we have another correction here, and you guys have been <laughs> so on the ball, and uh, this is in response to our podcast about tattoos, and we talk about Kat, uh, an ad Cat Von D of reality show fame did. She's covered in tattoos. For any of you guys who don't know who she is, she's the, the lead personality on LA Inc. And she is a lovely woman who is just covered from head to toe for tattoos. And at one point she did this ad campaign where they use cover up to essentially like remove all of her tattoos and show show you what she looks like tattoo less. And we made the point that, you know, by doing that, we were, it was removing her power, et cetera, et cetera. And a number of you guys wrote in to say that um actually Kat Von D was exercising her own power because that was an ad for her makeup line to advertise tattoo concealer.
2: True. Wah wah. So But a then ironic, you can get kind of a little circular. You can get a little circular with it. Why did she need a makeup to cover up tattoos if society was a little easier on tattoos? Yeah. But Not
1: we, that I'm justifying <laughs> the mistake we made. But we were we were wrong in the the, that pop
2: culture reference whoops and I will say some of you are strangely mad that we would get a Kat Fondi fact wrong really angry let's do one more let's do one more Molly alright this one is uh, not signed but really a great email that I like Uh, I'd like to thank you for podcasting about androgyny. I identify as androgynous, and it's a continual frustration to feel so invisible, unaccepted, and judged for something that is not a choice, but is an accident of my genetics and or brain development, like being gay is for some. Your handling of the topic was very respectful, if sometimes a little clumsy and confusing physical sex, male-female, with gender, masculine-feminine. I wanted to add that there are people who have a clearly defined physical sex, such as female in my case, but who still identify as androgynous. Just as some people born male have the conviction that they should have been born female, I was born female but have the conviction that I should have been born some combination of male and female, and thus I am most comfortable with a mixture of gender roles and behaviors. If it were socially acceptable to reassign my physical sex to be androgynous to match up with my gender identity, I'd do it in a heartbeat. However, our society is still so stuck on gender and sex binaries that no therapist or doctor will allow a middle-of-the-road sex reassignment I'd love to hear if any of your other listeners identify as androgynous, and I hope that if you read this on the podcast that this note helps them feel a little less alone. So there you go.
1: So thanks to all of you for writing in. Again, the address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And if you would like to add any comments during the week, whatever, let us know how you're doing, any questions. You can also head over to our Facebook page and it's just facebook.com slash stuff. Mom never told you. And you can also follow Molly and me on Twitter. We have a Twitter account and it's Mom Stuff Podcast. I know, we have so many different iterations of Mom Stuff, Stuff Mom Never Told You, etc, but just but just bear with us. And then finally, if you want to follow our blog, it is called Stuff Mom Never Told You and it's found at howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready, are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking.